You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to this week's episode of Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Herd is hosted by me, Joe Hakeem, and I'm joined by Nick Britsky of Nick Drinks, Jason Leinert of the Detroit Optimist Society, and Vato of the Hungry Dudes. We are joined each episode by workers, leaders, and analysts of the hospitality industry. Please take a moment to subscribe to Herd on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you like or dislike what you hear, write a review. We love hearing from our listeners. You can visit Herd at HerdPodcast.com, follow Herd on Twitter and Instagram at HerdPodcast, and like Herd Podcast on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and now here's this week's episode of Herd. Hello, friends, and welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Tonight in the studio, I have uh, Vance Somalier and the wine director of Red Wagon Wine Shop. Wine Shop? Mick Deskamps. Hello. Decomp. Decomp, right? <laughs> Frenchman? Uh huh. <laughs> Deskamps because it's easier to say. Because America. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to talk, we're going to get to wine in, in a bit. We're going to get to. Uh, uh, some topics about wine that probably haven't been discussed much around here in the, in the Metro Detroit market. But I want to start with something a little bit, uh, I don't know, kind of a bump in the road, let's call it. Um, I talk about Ackroyds a lot. It's my my spot. And I um, it, it's mostly puppy dogs and rainbows. It's, an, it's, a, it's a happy place. We try to run it uh, as, as best we can. Um, sometimes uh, Mother Nature gets the best of you and uh mother nature we had a pretty bad rainstorm here um on saturday and what that the fallout of that in redford was um a loss of power to about 1200 residences and businesses in the redford area um it, well i don't know if that's the entire redford area but at least in our vicinity of the woods um that included our bakery our power was out from 6:45 on saturday until 8:30 on monday hmm. What that caused it, you know, what that caused was we we don't have a generator. We're not wired for for gener for generator power. Um, we tried our best. Uh, we we lost thousands and thousands of dollars worth of worth of material. Um, you know, the the raw materials, the 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 baked goods. The um, we saved a lot of our frozen stuff. Um, the fallout, you know, businesses have a lot to contend with on a day-to-day -day basis outside of natural disasters and, and things like uh, power outages and, and, and the like. Um, having to face something like this during our slow time of year, no less, is incredibly difficult. Um, luckily, uh, th the folks we have working with us are incredible. Um, I I've wanted to curl up in a ball cry, scream, punch something, um, emotions I normally don't feel, or if I do feel them, I don't let myself recognize them. Uh, numerous times th this, uh, th these past couple days. Um, however, uh, during our team huddle this morning, um, Allison, one of our employees mentioned that, uh, she had been through multiple power outages at different places. She's been in the industry for years. And she said that our our team has handled this with the most grace and um, and calmness that she's ever seen. 
um, which I took as an incredible compliment. Um, but also underneath the surface, a lot of us don't talk about this in our industry. There, there's a, a lot of anguish. Um, and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm saying this now to let it out mm-hmm. to, to kind of, you know, just be honest about it and, and, and to say, um, there, there is an end to the, there is a light on the other side of the tunnel. I think, <laughs> I hope, um, you know, th- there have been moments where it's, just, it's like, I just want to give up and, you know, uh, w- w- I'm not going to, um, and, and we're not, we're not going to just close up shop because of this. It's not, not, not the thing to do. Um, but you know, it, it's one thing on top of another sometimes. <laughs> no, I mean, I would say before we get into anything, I would say for me, hearing what you said um, earlier before we started was was telling because in F and B food and beverage, we all kind of just deal to deal with things like this, and the the people who aren't successful are the ones who have a big problem with it. Um, but everybody else, I mean, it's tough to suck it up over over and over again, and that's a huge. That's a huge pill to have to swallow, a huge bitter pill. Um, I mean, I guess on a really big tangent that maybe for another program, you could talk about people with being depressed because of this and or substance abuse because of this as means of coping. But happily, this isn't this conversation. No, but but I think what, what plays into this um, a little bit is – this need for our industry to hide what's going on behind the curtain. Mm. Um, so we have this, I mean, part of the hospitality experience is we're bringing guests in and having them forget about what's happening out there to them. Right. And so whatever's happening to us, a lot of times gets hidden. And this is true of actors and, and performers and, and that as well. Right. A lot of them, um, Maybe maybe the, the 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 pain is coming through their work, but they're hiding. Sometimes they're hiding, or uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe that's the wrong terminology. But for for our industry specifically, like we we want to take people on a journey and an mm-hmm. experience. And, and what that causes sometimes is for us to not be able to talk about the the fires that are happening. You know, figurative fires, right? Um, in the kitchen, uh, a guest doesn't know if if they're. Their steak came out and it got re it got refired three times because the temperatures got fucked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not it doesn't matter to the guest. It matters to the, the bottom line in the in the kitchen. But the, you know what does the, the guest doesn't care? There's the phrase. Um, it's part of the cost of doing business. And as much as I don't like to be um, emotionless about this, you know it's. For beyond what you're going through and what you guys have gone through and are enduring, you know, for restaurants that can speak to fine dining, because I spent a lot of my, my a lot of my years there. It's, you know, you have to backseat yourself. It's not what this is about. You, you know, you come second or third, and if you disagree, then you need to leave. You know, and that's, and I, I will still agree with that. Because when it comes down to this, um, you're there, your job is to create an experience. You are there as a servant, as a server, you know, even if you are a manager or a sommelier or a maitre d' or a chef, you're there as part, you know, to, it's kind of a weird thing because we've, we've grown with this ego that's come, we know that chefs have ego, but there's this whole idea of, 
oh, I'm in this restaurant versus it's all fancy versus something that's maybe not so fancy. So I can have, I can put on airs, but really all you're doing is serving people even with even more money than you, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's, for me, it's always simple of, you know, um, backseat yourself, realize what you're there for. But part of that is the compartmentalization of emotion, even when the shit is really hitting the fan hardest, which you're not supposed to show it. Right. You know, the show must go on. And that's not exclusive to our business. You look at, I mean, I will say, you know, the craziest part about uh, F&B, and I'm going to put you into this as well, as much as you're talking about your store, because you you guys are very interactive there um, at Ackroyd's. I will say that the the closest analogy that I've ever come across to people who deal with that kind of up and down uh, is healthcare, especially hospital workers. Long hours, crazy hours, often away from their loved ones. Uh, you can't show it. You can't show emotion there either. And similar problems. Yeah, and they're and they're. I mean, not not to compare us to to, to them to you know like, only at that level of um, the emotional. Emotion. Yeah, and I'm not talking about the what goes into it. I'm talking about purely from the standpoint of stress. Yeah, and stress management and what you are allowed to show appropriately and what not. So I, I want to stay on this topic of stress for a second because I, I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong about this, you you shifted from your, your work life from the restaurant world to retail. Yep. Okay. How has that changed the level of stress in your life? Um, has it or is it different? It's different. I mean, for me, I mean, um, you trade one set of stress for another. <laughs> I left I left the restaurant world for many reasons, but the biggest one being that I wanted to be an active parent and an active husband instead of it being me, you know, passing ship in the night with my wife and, and somebody who saw my kids maybe one day of the week. Um, I decided to make a choice in this and the restaurant world changed a little bit to kind of push me in that direction. You know, so first I jumped back to uh, at first, I, w- I jumped to wholesale and then to retail once more. And, you know, uh, the the gig that I have now is much more allowing for me to be a father, which is great. And one of the reasons that I've stayed there as long as I have. Uh, the people who own it are wonderful and they are very much family driven. Otherwise, you know, I probably would have moved on because that's, you know, for me, it's about challenge. Mm-hmm. But I've stayed on as long as I have because of the familial aspect and it's less stressful. I mean, the stress that I have is familial stress. You know, I'm not saying there's not work stress, but, you know, for, you know, when you're working 75, 80 hour plus weeks every week and you're working the floor and you're working away from your family, that's extra stress. That's what I don't have right now. Yeah. So you're working a... I imagine a forty-ish hour, yeah, forty-five, 45 50. Yeah. yeah, which is market markedly less. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, for um, me though, you know, to be good at this, and that's that's where it's not true, because even when I'm not at work, I work. Yeah, and so add into that another ten to fifteen hours a week, and that's the real labor. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is for everybody, but for me especially, I am definitely on call and on guard with email, with internet. Um, especially with selling, 
long after I'm gone. So how long have you been at Red, out of the restaurant industry? Um, so I've been out of the restaurant industry formally since 2000 and um, let's say 2013, early first quarter, 2013. So it's been, it's tech, it'll be six years um, in January that mm-hmm. I've been out of it. Okay. So what have you noticed about the restaurant industry from outside of it? in Detroit as as it's progressed since 2013 because a lot's happened. I think it's awesome what's happened. I mean, I went to school at, you know, Wayne State. I, you know, grew up in the city of Detroit proper. You know, I worked downtown for roughly 10 years. Dude, I, so I've seen a lot, a lot of change. And to see um, a concentration and a kind of a retraction of restaurant openings from the suburbs to move downtown, which is more centrally located. That's one huge thing that we've all seen. Um, you've seen this whole shabby chic thing blow up. <laughs> yep. And I think now it's finally coming back where instead of everything being so, uh, I'm going to have a designer mac and cheese at 15 different restaurants. Now, maybe more white tablecloth, maybe. Um, I think more risks have been taken. I think you've seen a lot more small restaurant that is that's in a, instead of it being like a hundred seat, hundred and fifty seat restaurant, and like it used to be plus. Maybe now you're seeing more thirty, fifty seat restaurants, and much more tasting menus and chef and you know beverage person specific different you know driven cultures, which is a very different set of challenges. And so, how has wine shifted? I think wine has shifted in many ways. I think one of the things you've seen generationally here, um, especially during the midst of this change, is less of a hyper-commercial and maybe more sommelier-driven or, um, you know, thoughtful pairings. I'm not saying it always works. I'm saying I've seen a lot more point of view, and I think that's, you know, open to interpretation, plus or minus. But... I think the uh, culture has shifted definitely more towards small lists for for wine lists, more uh, creative um, options, you know. And again, that's plus or minus. You have the gamut there, but less options, more turnover, uh, which I think that is that part is good. But generationally speaking, you know, you'll see a lot more natural wine. That's huge in Europe. It's it's always been big in Detroit in small circles. And I think that's gained more, um, more publicity, but I think in general it's, uh, it's been more, um, I would say point of view driven lists instead of it being trying to make everybody happy. So you're you're talking that there's one person driving a list Mm -hmm. and whatever their, uh, predilections are is, is what the, what the list that's the dictation of what the concept has been. Um, and again, you know, I'm sure there's always an element of adaptation. It's not always done in an envelope. There's always something new, but that's been something that is, you're asking what's different before. And, you know, maybe even that some things that have persisted are bigger lists, well-rounded lists. But what has grown are these small lists with, you know, more beverage pairing, short, short, uh, tasting menus, you know, taste with, with wine or beer or cider options, you know, to pair with them. And I think, you know, and again, I, I think that is both exciting and it presents a very different set of challenges. 
So fr- from a, a coverage perspective on the media coverage, um, especially, I mean, as progressed as say since 2013, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we have, we have eater, we have, we have multiple food writers in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, what about the coverage? And, and I'll even lump, I'll throw beer into this because beer is huge here in, in Michigan and we have an incredible beer state. Um, where does wine fit in? Michigan's a, a strong wine state from from a growing perspective, right? Um, I don't know. I'm not going to make a right uh, a comment on quality. I, I don't know enough about Michigan wine specifically. However, um, in, in terms of the coverage of wine programs and who's doing interesting things and and what path they're going down, or or even talking to sommeliers directly and asking point of view questions, what's happening there? That's a Unfortunate question. I'll say this. It's an unfortunate question because I think the answer in general is question mark, dot, dot, dot. Um, I think if I see a restaurant with a beer program covered, I'm happy. If I see a restaurant with a cocktail program, I'm happy. If I see a restaurant with a wine program covered, I'm elated because you don't see usually much of any of those three. And it's it's unfortunate because I think generationally more now than ever, the millennials and Gen Xers are more interested in interesting, maybe not volume, but interesting concepts. You know, I think the door was open with chef culture toward it. And I'm not saying this has to be sommelier driven because I am the least, you know, some dropping, <laughs> you know, title sommelier you're ever going to meet. Um, but I can tell you it's unfortunate the coverage I can feel to be disproportionate, uh, to really what's going on, you know, especially in wine where if you look at a lot of these restaurants that have gained accolades and I'm not going to name names with restaurants, but wine is a huge part of the revenue center. And if you don't talk about that and yet you're lauding, you know, the amazing kitchen and, you know, dry age this and tremendously expensive ingredients there, those food costs are, you know, abusively high. I've been in this business. I know what it is. The only way to, to off, you know, offset it is beverage. And in many of these cases, it's wine that's doing it. And plenty of places like this, people are going because of the curated, you know, wine coverage and wine lists. And if it's not covered, then you're like, all right, well, someone doesn't get what's going on here. And then if you name off, you know, all of these names, you know, multiple people are missing, you know, multiple of these uh, media outlets, just they're either uh, not on the same page or unwilling to dig in. And and is that because wine particularly is a very, I don't know the word, Uh, I I don't want to say burdensome because that makes it sound negative, but but I think that might even be it. It, It's a huge topic. Wine's a huge topic, sure. And so, but so is so is cheese. So is beer. Does it mean? I guess the difference is, and I'll, I'm gonna. I'm sorry to cut you off on this, but this is. I hear that a lot. But baby steps. You know, we don't know everything we know about food, but we know what we like. You can start there. I believe in circles in this business. You know, you you know concentric circles. Draw a small circle about what you know. You know, try to expand it. Learn a little bit more. Expand that circle. Expand that circle, and eventually. You're covering a lot more than you did before. But if you come up with the adage, 
boy, it's too big of a subject, you know, I'm daunted, you'll never get out of that original small circle you just drew around yourself. And that's a hell of a way to limit yourself to this world because it's a fantastic world. It's an exciting world. It's an expansive, you know, subject wine, but so is beer and so is craft cocktails. You know, the more you learn, the more you discover that one, you don't know, two, that you might, you know, you discover that there's somebody else with a different opinion, especially in cocktail uh, culture and recipes. Uh, But beer, I'd say, and wine have a lot of similarity in the fact that these are tremendously, uh, it's a tremendously rich, rich tapestry. Um, the world makes, you know, examples of all of these, you know, both wine and, and beer, every country has something. So it's a, it's a crazy, um, it's a crazy thing to me that more people wouldn't at least try to do a little bit better than what they're doing. But right now I'd say I always pay attention and do yourself a favor on this one. This is a little, little project, a little test when there is a new restaurant being talked about in any publication. Look at the beverage. Look for the beverage coverage. If it if it gets a sentence, it's it's better than what most people are getting. I I would lump in oddly enough. I would lump in uh, service into that yeah, too. Yeah, service is definitely, and you're you're right on for that. Good for you. Um, and so I, I'll g- give you an example of something that well, it's not an example, but it's something something that came up the other night. I was at um uh, a preview night for friend and associate, which is opening in Greek town in the old, uh, mosaic Santorini building. Um, and, uh, Joel, the, uh, one of the managers there was spe- talking to me and he, he said to me, he, we introduced our, I introduced myself to him and, um, he recognized me and he, he said, you know, to, to call to, to do what you've been doing means that with the hungry dudes and, and with the, when this podcast is that, um, not only have you tried good food, but you tried a lot of bad food. And, um, no one's ever said that to me in those words before. That's great. Um, and so there's this sense, and I thought about it with, with wine, cause I look at their wine list and I, and I, you know, their, their glassware was by myself and I, I recognized a couple and I was like, I'll just get the ones that I recognize. Sure. This, this one sounds good. I've had this before. Um, something similar. It was a different, um, varietal, but, um, but we, we tend to, you talked about circles and I'm guilty of staying in my circle. I know what I like. I, I know what producer I like. I know what even what importers I like, which is probably more than the average American could say. But you you just drew two or three circles there. I'm <laughs> not kidding. I, you. I know. I, I did. But I but I also wa- wanna point out that like wine is one of those things like I, I don't have time to drink shitty wine. I don't want to drink shitty wine. I don't want to pay for shitty wine. So this does this go right into that point of service to you or no? Uh, because I will say, because if it didn't, it's a hell of a tie-in. Whether you believe in a strongly trained staff and or having a beverage professional sommelier on 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 staff, isn't that isn't that the dot dot dot? Isn't that the insert help here? Hey, you know what, man? I saw you looking at that list, you know, friend, <laughs> and um, we've got this killer Falangina from Italy here. That I think instead of that Pinot Grigio that you might normally get, this is awesome. Or I know you love, um, I know you love Gamay with some funk on it. How about you try this, you know, Sangiovese that's a little bit more earth driven and not from, you know, God knows where part of Italy. 
And the point is, is that this is the conversation. It literally took another two seconds, three seconds of selling. And all of a sudden, not only potentially, if you if they were paying attention to you, um, did, you know, not only did they, you know, sell something different, they could have upsold. And, you know, all of a sudden, uh, if you liked it and they listened to you, they have your trust. Yep. And it's a mark. You know, for me in restaurants, especially fine dining, it was all about takeaway. You know, what are you going to do to leave part of um, a positive experience with the guest? You know, beyond the 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 service, I mean, you, you want it to be flawless service. You want it to be quiet service. But personality is a big part of it. Takeaway. I mean, there's more restaurant options now than ever before in the metro area. You know, at some point, you know, someone's going to win. You know, and someone's going to close. You know, part of that is exactly what you just said a couple minutes ago is how are they delivering the the experience to you? And I think with beverage is even more important, but, you know, just as important as spieling the specials and knowing how to cross sell there. This is, you know, the same kind of thing. But I would say for the tie in there, that's the answer, you know, because, you know, otherwise, you know, these lists are self I don't know. They're selfish, you know, and I would be guilty of it too. If I didn't teach my staff when I was still on the floor, if I didn't teach my staff to how to sell a glass pour list of 25, 30 items with some of those items, maybe say half that they didn't know before, what good am I doing to the, to the guests coming into the restaurant? Okay. So I want to extend this out to the coverage part and a really specific part of that. So, uh, Joel, recognize me, introduce myself, all of that. Ben, who is also one of the bartenders there, um, no, he's worked at other restaurants, knows me, knows, knows my, what I like, my preferences, right? So they, they have a leg up on me as someone who may talk about their, um, restaurant or, or, and not review in the classic sense or mm-hmm. whatever. I'm recognizable. Sure. Anyone who's recognizable writes about restaurants. How can they take on the, the service element of, a wine pairing because how do right. – and if they're recognized right at the beginning, um, how do we know it's it, it's their best interest versus someone trying to flex their muscles versus just myself? I know what I like and if I say I want something, is there some fear on the other side to say – tell me, well, what about this? I guess – I guess part of that comes down to the scruples of the establishment, right? I mean, I remember for a great food reviewer um, who I gained a ton of respect for in the business when I was in restaurants, Sylvia Rector, uh, she wanted everything exactly as it was spelled out. If it was a tasting menu with pairings, you couldn't deviate with that. You couldn't say, oh, I got something extra special. Can I do this? She wanted what guest at table 23 was going to have just as well as what she was going to have here. Why? Because she's no different, you know, and I think, you know, I've heard this over the years, you know, when reviewers spotted, and again, I understand, I know the need and I know the economics behind it, but you can't change. It's, it's a really maddening thing. If you're a guest and a say a, a savvy guest, which a lot of our, you know, diners in Michigan are, especially the ones who out regularly, and maybe they they note that even if they don't note that it's a critic, they note service and they note service time and they note people who are fawning over somebody. 
So say you're a diner who's a regular diner and you've been in several times to establishment X and all of a sudden you're in a night where a critic comes in or a reviewer or some kind of, you know, somebody comes in. An influencer. Influencer. God <laughs> help us, right? And so they come in and, you know, this table observes said guest getting, you know, uh, amused, second amuse, you know, um, you know, chef, sous chef, pastry chef, you know, maitre d', you know, and I'm not saying that all these positions exist in said restaurant, but assume they do. And you've been a guest who spent a ton of money at your, you know, table of four. Every time you come in, you're you're in there maybe two, three times a month. You're spending several thousand dollars um, a month in many cases. And if nothing else, several thousand dollars a year. And you've not had one of those people come to your table. And here's this one person who you've never seen in this restaurant on this one night getting in this all. Is it possible he's some dignitary? Is it possible he's an owner? Doesn't matter. Your opinion is what you're going to walk away with, that this person got a different and disproportionately greater experience than you did. And you've dined here more than once. You've dined here faithfully, and you never asked for this, but you sure observe that. That's the problem. And, I, you know, this has been something we've talked about for a long time, and guests aren't really smart diners. They're not, um, not going to ignore that, you know, especially on busy nights. Do, do you think that people notice this? Oh, yeah, I do. Okay. Absolutely. And, and again, never mind the, the reviewer aspect because uh-huh. they don't – most people aren't going to connect those dots because why should they? Right. They don't know what people look like. But people fawning over somebody, absolutely, be careful. And especially if it's only at one table, you know, and imagine, you know, what, what kind of exacerbates that situation if <laughs> you're all of a sudden having – shoddy coverage or if the i's aren't dotted and t's aren't crossed at your table and then you're observing somebody who with one person who's having a tremendous amount of coverage and you don't that's something that i i can tell you if you're trying to please somebody too hard you better make sure um sure as hell that you're doing it to the rest of the dining room especially at the very least to the people directly around him and i i can tell you many people don't do that so what needs to shift? What, what do you think, if, if you could pick one element of, uh, say, let's take wine, for example, of, of the coverage, the, the kind of almost. Uh, I would say not, I would say I'd love to hear things talked about more as part of the whole. You know, food is what people come in for in many of these instances. But in some cases, it is the program, wine, beer, you know, cocktails or otherwise. Or everything that people come a part of. One of the restaurants, and I'm going to name a restaurant. Can I name one mm-hmm, restaurant? Mm-hmm. One restaurant that I love going to, and it's been here for roughly 10 years now, is Roast. Uh-huh. Uh, Roast is one of those restaurants that hits every aspect of the dining experience exactly as I think it should on that level. Service is fantastic. Food is fantastic. But it's a well-rounded cocktail, beer, and wine program if you're looking for uh, analogies to that in Michigan, you're going to really, you know, especially downstate here, who do all of that well and it's white tablecloth, go fish. You're not going to find that. You might find one who has 
two out of those, you know, two of those things, three of those things, but all of those things, that's not common. Mm-hmm. So I'd say just be fair in the coverage. Um, don't, you know, don't put the uh, tunnel vision on just because you're comfortable with something. You know, it's just like, imagine, you know, imagine if, you know, through um, all the time that you spent at Ackroyd's, um, you just felt, you know, you guys do all these wonderful, you know, pies and tarts and uh-huh. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm an <laughs> asshole already. Now. So, and that you always do all these pies and imagine that you look through the lens of restaurants only by the strength of the pastry and that's how you judge them. You would be, you know, myopic in how you viewed it, but you're viewing it only through your lens. Right. That's a lot of times how I think these restaurants are viewing, or a lot of these, uh, the write-ups are reviewing um, and viewing the culture in a restaurant. They're they're only looking at what they want to look at, and they're not looking at what's already in front of them. And unfortunately, this, you know, kind of brought me to this idea that if you're from the outside looking in, and you were, you know, relying on you know, any of these publications and media outlets to judge what kind of culture Detroit and Michigan at large had, you aren't going to judge the beverage culture very fairly. You're going to think they are pretty antiquated, you know, and we may be, <laughs> but you're going to judge that as non-existent the, in many cases because they're not talked about. The wine particularly? All, all of it. Beverage. Beverage in general. Beverage okay. in general. Because, again, look for beverage mentions and write-ups for restaurants. No, and okay, because I, I was going to say. I will say, I mean, outside of the buzzwords here or there about craft beer and occasionally, you know, there's a craft cocktail place who knows what they're doing, even those have, have waned. I mean, I'm talking about just purely on restaurant write-ups having mentions of uh, what they're doing outside of food and you know you could add service in there you know outside of you know uh food you're not getting those other things covered and like i said for me wine as much as i'm in this business i'm a beverage person that's you know that's what i've done forever i love beer and i love cocktails and for every restaurant program that i ever built you know i did my best to have all of those represented but i mean wine is clearly the redheaded stepchild in our market you know, why? Because I'll tell you right now, those numbers sure as hell aren't going down with wine as a percentage of the beverage whole. You can make an issue, you can make an argument that the other two are, and wine still hasn't gained more coverage. So what's going on? So I would say you've got some splaining to do if you're a reviewer and you haven't picked up that, you know, that mantle. And I think the answer is apathy, um, ineptitude. You know, something along these lines. And it sucks because, again, who loses? It's not me who loses. It's the consumer who loses. It's the guest who loses. And, yes, the market may change, um, may be different if sometimes it was talked about more. And But I, I would tell you, in general, you know, you you have people with, with wine and spirits and beer. It's a heavily trust business. You know, people, it's very suggestible. You know, and I think in general, there's a heck of a lot of disinformation in all these categories. People just want to be educated. And I think, you know, instead of it being this opportunity just to 
you know, positively cover with something that's already going on. It's omitted in favor of a fluff piece <clears throat> or window dressing or, you know, we're going to prop up a friend, you know, or any of these kind of things that, that could be going on, you know, instead of it actually being an accurate representation of what's going uh, what's going down on these spots. Let me let me play devil's advocate for a second here and talk about food versus beverage on on the covered side. So food has this sexy appeal to it, right? The dishes are beautiful. Dishes can be beautiful. Um, cocktails even can have these like beautiful garnishes, and, and they're they're uh, presented with a flourish, right? Mm-hmm. Um, beer to some extent. Um, and wine for, for the same extent there's no there's very little sexiness involved in it it's a glass of wine it's a pint of beer right so so that the the visual element of it which we all instagram mm-hmm. culture we're all reliant on it it just what are it, ways are what are ways around that pouring table side you know interacting with the bottle you know and i would say with beer and wine that's always something that and not every not every establishment's going to do it but I would say that's an instant way of engaging somebody. You know, bottles are visceral. You know, people are tactile. You know, all of a sudden you're engaging in something and the opinion and appreciation of something like that is changed. So, but I mean, I mean, maybe to your point, um, we have completely reverted to this, you know, we need to be sated at every single turn culture. But I guess... Um, I guess I would say you're going to lose if you want to flourish in your, your, your glass of wine, if you want to garnish. Yeah, I guess, I guess you would, but how many people go for a garnish on a plate, you know, instead of actually having a steak that's perfectly well cooked? I can tell you this for, you know, playing devil's advocate with your devil's advocate. <laughs> um, you know, I would say that I can't tell you how often, and maybe you have seen us too. I worked at steakhouses that had complete and total bullshit garnishes. And, you know, when that came out and, and a guest would see it, be like, what the hell is this? You get this, <laughs> you know, hey, buddy, get me a side plate. You know, let me, let's get this out of here right away. Now I can eat my steak. I mean, and I don't think there was any issue there. And steak is pretty whatever on a plate. I mean, we may know it intuitively to taste awesome, but if you're looking at it from afar, it doesn't look like much. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so... I'd say for me, the experience is um, as instantly gratifying as it is in your glass and in your mouth. But, you know, let's assume that that's not enough. Show them the bottle and, you know, move on. But, but so the, the <coughs> sommelier title, not, not even sommelier, someone, a beverage director sure. or, or someone who knows a lot about everything that's being poured. Mm-hmm. That's another salary to pay. Yeah. And so how do you justify that salary in a place that is either just starting out or or has been trucking along for years and has never had that? You're not going to, I mean, that's, and and there we are in Michigan Mm -hmm. and look around and you're not going to find a ton of them. Um, You'll find them in, you'll find them in restaurants who really need their beverage concepts to completely and totally carry um, their food cost. And or <clears throat> for the places that people really go in there to expect it. So go back to roast, you know, go back to prime and proper or highlight prime and proper. And yet, you know, and then I, I think in general, the next however many years, you're going to see more of these things develop 
because we've gotten away, and this is what we highlighted earlier, what have I seen that's different were these smaller concepts that were more 40-seat, 50-seat, 60-seat concepts that they don't need somebody like that. The problem is, you know, and this I had highlighted to you at the start, one of the reasons I left was a changing culture. And, you know, the jack-of-all-trades thing has been a joke for a long time in this business. You know, have a, you know, why hire a sommelier who does an amazing job training the staff and running a beverage program and executing it when you can have a manager, you know, um, manager, bar manager, sommelier, you know, service manager, trainer, all in one, and then pay for one of those salaries instead of four, and then work the person to death. And then you end up with somebody who has a job for six months, burns out, and then they're on this constant cycle of hire, rehire, hire, rehire until they find somebody. And then in the meantime, everybody suffers. It seems to me that if you, if you hire someone under the pretense of having multiple roles like that, that that's multiple um, areas of expertise. Um, it typically doesn't happen like that. It, it typically falls into it. They'll start with several jobs or few and then – one year in, you know, P&L starts coming due and, and or people, the investors want to be paid. And then, oh, we don't need this person. We don't need that person. We don't need this person. But we still want it all executed exactly like it was before. And it just falls in someone's yep. lap. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is so predictable and so not uncommon that it happens. And, you know, chefs have it. Same thing happened to them. You know, you may have an executive chef, a sous chef, chef de cuisine. And maybe they they fire or lay off, you know, Chef de Cuisine and sous-chef. Now the chef's doing everything. And <clears throat> chefs run themselves into the ground all the time. We've heard about that a lot. You know, chefs, you know, new chef, new chef, new chef. You know, manager, same thing. There, there's actually a re- an article uh, <coughs> last week, I believe, with um, uh, Sean Brock, who is uh, Husk. Yep. Uh, the article was – and I haven't read the article yet. Yes, so, He's a polarizing but, figure down there. I will say this, though. Yeah, he is. Um, but he has wellness has become one of his spearheads for for his restaurants, and the the article was titled "Putting the Rest in Restaurants." And he is his goal is to to provide a ba- a work life balance for people, mm-hmm. and, and that's that's a pretty um, that's a great goal to have. It's an admirable goal, admirable, yeah. In fact, and um, and it's something that requires restaurants to hire more people. And to spread out workload or to teach people to work more efficiently? I don't know in most instances how many of these restaurants are run so bare bones, <clears throat> you know, as it is with so little redundancy in many, in many instances. And I'm not going to say not all, I'm not going to say all, that it's really difficult to call any more fat away than you already have. And that's front and back. You know, could you find a, could you lose a server here? Sure. Could you lose another dish person here? Yeah. Could you lose another guy in a line here? But yeah, you're, you know, all of a sudden now you're costing yourself turns and you're making less money. So the answer is, it sounds great, but we still can't agree to pay restaurant workers, you know, um, you know, especially in the front of the house, a better wage. You know, look at the, what's the server wage per hour? It's like three something. 
No, it's not, not even, even three. Not even three. Yet. Not it's even like, three dollars. Like two, yeah, two eighty-five. Two maybe, maybe. And again, it's been a few years. I don't think it's hit three. I still think it's under three. Okay. And <clears throat> you know, so you're fully regard. You know, and I'm not saying. And I know the fight, the counter example to this, or the the counter argument is, well, why is there no wage, you know, base wage for people in the back of the house? And the answer is, is that, you know, they rely on tips to cover the, the balance, uh, cover the difference. And, you know, so if we can't get to, <clears throat> you know, I guess I look at it this way. This is how slim the margin is as it is. You know, if if restaurants in many cases paid a living wage, you know, to service staff, you know, and a better wage to the back of the house, non, you know, like dish crew, et cetera. Um, many of these restaurants weren't, aren't going to be in business. You know, that's just the reality behind it. You know, I'm not saying that across the board, you're not going to find ones who can pull enough volume, you know, to, to, you know, succeed. But, you know, that's how far we are, how far away we are from gaining that uh, mantle of, Work less, you know, have, be safer or, you know, be, be better on yourself. I don't think, I think that is a great goal. Um, but, you know, that's another one of these Pandora box, Pandora's box issues that I think would, you know, more or less reflect societally, not necessarily on F and B. The, the thought that, um, paying people more. Would put people out. Of, would put places out of business, and and I don't disagree with that. Is dining out too inexpensive currently? Um, I guess you know depends on where you go. Uh-huh. I mean, if you're talking steakhouse, do you think steakhouses are inexpensive? I I, I don't know. So it, I guess is, I guess it depends on the kind of food. So yeah, would, would a steakhouse be hit by this? As much as, say, yes. someone who's in the mid-range. Yes. So okay. the answer to this is it depends on the kind of food and it depends on the margin um, and the food costs that you're running. For instance, say you're an Italian restaurant who specializes in making a lot of pasta <clears throat> in-house. You know, your labor isn't excessive, but your food cost is super low. And, you know, you can you know, pay for ingredients, say three or four or $5 per dish and get away with selling it for $20, $25 a dish. You know, that's a pretty nice food cost versus say a steak that you, you know, say you're spending, you know, $20 for it without labor for wholesale. And then, you know, maybe you're charging, um, let's say, you know, Let's say you're going to charge, you know, $40, $40 for it. You know, you're running 50% food cost here or, or $30 for it. You're running a 50% food cost, you know, where um, you need that number to come down um, if you want to uh, do something with that extra money. You know, you need that food cost number to come down or you need to charge more for your food. And then you're going to have pushback. One way or the other is going to be pushback. There's going to be pushback for people the restaurant's either going to lose money and not stay open very long, or if people aren't willing to pay for a product, they're not going to keep coming back if you're going to charge twice as high as maybe somebody else wants, you know, to charge you for the same thing. You know, so I'd say the answer is somewhere in the middle. Um, some places can can charge a little bit more, you know, if people would be willing to pay for it. That's the answer. And, and, 
how much of that is dependent upon the the overarching kind of economy of the state which we're talking about how much of that is a michigan thing and is this something i mean the the argument is that this is a federal minimum wage right so the federal government is saying everybody needs to get paid 15 dollars an hour mm-hmm. it, should that should it be a state by state issue because states know their is the argument that states know better than the government in terms of what well i think in general no matter what um all this, you know, the, all of these states who've been pushing for this elevated wage, they're still an exception for <clears throat> for restaurants. So I think we're not we're not talking about this anyway. But so I think it's going to be a state by state thing. I think it should be a state by state thing. I mean, you and I have talked in the past about Danny Meyer and some of the push pull that he's gone through with no tipping, and I think he's reversed. Hasn't he? I think all of his places have reversed. And I want to be clear. I think that a living wage should be talked about outside of tipping. I don't think tipping should be taken away if a living wage is provided. I 100% 100 agree with that. I I think in general, um, servers as they're paid, I mean, especially, and I've seen how it goes, um, servers as they are paid, you know, they're not paid. I mean, they're not even paid enough to cover the taxes. That of the the tips that you know they're getting, so it's a it's a heck of a win for a restaurateur to be able to you know to to get that. But you know, it's also the culture that has been built around it. I I don't think the economics of restaurant owning are all that good. I mean, I think that's really the baseline part of this. I think people who would want to romanticize opening a restaurant, and people have offered me over the years, hey, you know. If I ha- if I if I staked you, would you want to open this restaurant and do this? I'm like, no, never, <laughs> not at all. And that's not that doesn't sound good to me at all. I want I don't I don't want any part of that. And I think it's it's a lack of awareness of the costs that go into it and the ridiculously low um, the the low profit margin that's coming out of it. Yeah, I, I mean, if you're doing well at a restaurant, you're looking at ten percent. Looking at ten percent, unless profit, yeah. you've completely turned something into a cash cow of um, super demand, where people are lining up, so breakfast concepts that can you know set their hours and do that, and and or places with really really low food costs, um, you know, and that's really it. Food cost is food cost and labor. You know, those that's that's your big drivers. Most places aren't paying insurance. Most places aren't paying a ton for service staff. So so again, back of the house labor and that, again that includes front of the house labor. Back of the house labor and food costs are are the biggest drivers. And that we're not talking about, you know, your rent and the other things that go into it. But Okay, so I want to shift gears for a second. <laughs> and I, I think there's a lot more to be said about what we were just talking about, but I want to talk about this uh these challenges you've been involved in and these kind of wine events that you participate in. Um, so last year in Austin, you were involved in something called Psalms Under Fire. Yeah. Okay. So what was that about? So, um, you know, it's funny. I don't, for the last two years, I hadn't, I hadn't competed a lot. And, or, you know, last 10 years I hadn't, I just haven't had the time with, with young kids. And I decided to, to throw my my hat in the ring. So this was a um, a national competition. I had made it to the finals, and 
was really cool you to dug it because it's uh <clears throat> you know it's multi-part this was a you know the theory so a bunch of questions about wine and beverages what you got you to the finals which was great but once you're there it was a cocktail uh cocktail design and execution uh competition combined with a food and wine pairing competition together. So we knew, I think, like a week or two out who the liquor sponsor was going to be. We had a $5 budget in, you know, outside of the liquor to spec two cocktails, which is not a lot. You know, to, so $5 to make a, an original cocktail, two drinks, was really challenging and interesting and we had our, we had to pretend that we were shopping at Whole Foods Austin which is pretty cool too so i had to do some theoretical costs um last year was citadel gin so i created uh some um i don't even know what the heck i called it i think i called it is this it, part uh, of being a sommelier yeah i mean sommeliers are um yeah absolutely okay. sommeliers remember this sommeliers aren't specific to wine okay People loved uh, – sommelier is really somebody who's taking care of beverage, and that's why I always make the distinction beverage and then ideal wine heavy. But, I mean, beer is something I love. Okay. And spirits and cocktails and everything that come along with that, every good – any good sommelier who's properly trained should be able to do all of those. Okay. So, um, so the first part, again, was this gin, you know, gin-sponsored walk around where everybody – there was like a – couple hundred attendees they got to vote on who they liked best and then you had to represent it and build that cocktail out not only um did you have to come up with this cocktail it had to be uh themed to a favorite song of yours so that was pretty interesting <laughs> mine was paul revere by the beastie boys all right <clears throat> so and uh then it was a um you didn't know what the dishes were but you got to eat the dishes um, and then you had to pair impromptu without trying the wines, uh, like a four course meal. So, and that's, so I, uh, I finished second in that one, but it was great to be there. I finished to a friend of mine who, uh, kind of won everything. <laughs> that was pretty great. Uh huh. And then this last year, um, I competed again. This was something instead of it being like in Austin, the, um, it was a regional competition, but it was competition held all over the world, uh -huh. sponsored by uh, Champagne Ruinar, and uh, that was a blind tasting competition, and I won that one. So, and that was that held in Detroit? Yeah, it was held at uh, Book Cadillac, and uh, if again, if it wasn't held here, I probably wouldn't have done it just uh -huh. because of time. But uh, that was great; it was close to home, and <clears throat> so. And in terms of like who you competed against, was it like uh, the Midwest? No, it was it, I mean it was held here but there were sommeliers from Vegas, West Coast, uh Colorado, out east. So there was a few different spots um in America this contest was being held and they were all being held at different dates. So you ended up having people who couldn't make one date or not come here. And I think in general probably because there wasn't enough people competing here, there were more openings. Okay. So this wasn't like some secretive thing. This is no. It was, of, a, it was a. It's a widely publicized international wine competition, and we're just lucky enough to have it 
on our doorstep. I, I guess what I'm getting at is like I had no idea it was occurring, yeah. and, and like so, so, and and honestly, like until you told me, I had no idea you won. Yeah. So like, well, that's a big deal. In other markets, uh, like I said, that was a press release for people, and um, it was well covered for me. I mean, listen, as uh, um, I don't one, I don't compete a lot. Two, I was excited to be there and be among a lot of peers and friends from all over the country, and then to win it didn't suck. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, this goes to the bigger picture. I mean, if this was a chef competition, I mean, hell, there was a chef cocktail competition, chefs doing cocktails uh, recently. Yes. And that was covered all over the place. Uh So here we have beverage professionals competing from all over the country here. No one, no one covered it at all. So is, am I surprised? No. Um, You know, that's, you know, that's part of this whole conversation. And as we as we wind down, like, I mean, it's not food versus beverage; it's food and beverage. So, how, how does it become more of a symbiotic relationship? I think it is in. I think it is for all practical purposes in the real world. Okay. I think when you insert somebody who's trying to understand how that world works, they may grab grab on to one one part or another. Ask any chef who is part of a business owner of an establishment and he knows how important cocktails and wine uh, are to the bottom line, just like that sommelier and beverage manager knows how important food is in getting people in the door. So I think the answer really is about people who are covering it to really be able to step back, not be so narrow focused and understand the, you know that both things, both food and beverage are part of the same whole. So where can people uh, – Red Wagon is where? We have two. Um, there's one in Troy and one in Rochester. I'm based in Rochester, but loosely oversee both. Okay. And so where can people find Red Wagon online? Red Wagon Shop. That's the old English S-H-O-P-P-E dot com. And are you guys on Instagram and Facebook and all yeah. that too? So at Red Wagon or at Red Wagon Shop underscore Rochester, at Red Wagon, Red Wagon Shop underscore Troy. And then same thing, Facebook too. And, and what about you personally on Instagram? I, I'm at at Farmer Mix Sam, so Farmer I'm Mick a big uh, big gardener. So at Farmer Mix Sam, and then uh, Michael A Deskamps on Facebook. All right. Well, I wish you a good harvest this year. Yeah, man. <laughs> You'll be part of it later, man. So hot sauce and hot chilies sauce. for everybody. Thanks so much for being yeah, with man. me. Yeah, man. That's a blast. Thanks for having me, man. Until next time, dine well, friend.